If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast which brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Once Britain was the dominant power, then the United States. Now, with the largest economy in the world by purchasing power, it seems that China's turn has come. This week on Philosophy for Our Times, our speakers question the end of the West. But will this be a more permanent shift? With neighboring India growing at a similar rate and a combined population four times that of the United States and Europe, could the age of the West be over, not for a decade or even a century, but for a millennium to come? Should we accept and even welcome the passing of the West? Or is there a response that would allow the West to retain its significance, if not its dominance? Asking these difficult questions, we have economist, writer and broadcaster, and a fellow in economics at the University of Oxford, Linda Yu. She'll be joined by award-winning journalist and a regular columnist for The Times, author of Paddling to Jerusalem and Voodoo Histories, David Aronovich. And finally, Professor of History and Politics at the University of Oxford and a regular presenter on BBC's Free Thinking, Rana Mitter. For more podcasts on the world's future, please do head over to our website at www.iai.tv for our latest podcast playlist and recent episodes curated just for you. And once you finish today's episode, please do join the conversation and head over to iTunes and give us a rating or review and make sure you're subscribed on whichever podcast platform you listen to us on. Back now to Stephanie Hare, who hosts this week's episode. Linda, over to you. Should we welcome the passing of the West? I don't, um, I don't think we are seeing the passing of the West. I think um, what you see is a, the pie is getting bigger. Um, so there is a relative shift in terms of where the uh, economic growth is coming from, where the middle class, um, which is obviously one of the biggest um, indicators of where um, you find markets and growth. So I think it's true um, that if you look at what drives global growth, um, China is the biggest driver of global growth, bigger um, than the United States and has been uh, so for uh, the last few years. Um, but it's not the passing of the West. It is essentially um, a new, think about China adding, and Asia in particular, adding between now and it's estimated in 2030, um, they're going to add billions of people to the middle class. So let me just give you some numbers because 
I'm an economist and it's what we do. So <laughs> bear with me. So um, a few years ago, there were 1.9 billion people in the middle class defined as those who earn between 10 to $100 per day, adjusted for what a dollar buys in their country. So it captures everyone who makes between $3,500 a year to 35,000 to $35, a year. So most of those people were in the West. Fast forward to 2030 on current trends, even with slowing growth in China and Asia, for the first time ever, more than half of the world will be middle class, 4.9 billion out of an estimated 8.6 billion people on Earth in 11 years' time. But two-thirds of those will be in the middle, will be in Asia. And that's the, um, so the pie is getting bigger and more of the growth is coming from Asia as they come into the middle class. But let me finish with this thought, which is even as this middle class grows, the average standard of living in China and in the rest of Asia, obviously with a few notable exceptions, will not be anywhere near the standard of living in the West. So average incomes here um, at, the, at this point are about four times, uh, maybe even five times that um, on average in China. And so what you're seeing is, I would say, uh, more growth engines, but I wouldn't characterize it as the passing of the West. Great. Um, I'm going to pass to my left and put you in the hot seat, Rana. Should we welcome the passing of the West? It's the end of the West as we know it, and I feel fine. Well, <laughs> I'm not actually sure that I do, and I'm not sure that it is the end of the West. I think to understand the idea that the West embodies, which is about a series of assumptions of where the West comes from and values that it holds. Let's do what Linda's done, but take it on one more level, which is to look at China, because I think China is the obvious comparator. It is the biggest, most economically significant and most military powerful non-liberal society on Earth at the moment. I'm using that term because non-liberal, it's a negative term, but it's the most objective term I can use. If you use illiberal or you know, whatever else it might be, it, it has a certain judgment value. And I think we should make judgments, but we should start with some of the, the data, as, uh, as Linda said. So let me give you three things that I think really make up the combination of things that makes China right now distinctive, and which then help us decide whether or not those are things that are going to challenge I don't want to say the West, I mean, the liberal world, I think is what we're talking about here, but let's call it the West uh, in the next few years and decades. And those three things are authoritarian politics, economic growth, and directed use of highly sophisticated technology. I think those are the three things which I think come together to become much more than the, the, the sum of their parts. So number one is authoritarian politics. China is one of a very small number of countries that is not only not liberal democratic, but also doesn't make any pretense at being so. Russia is different. Russia holds elections. I am told by various people that those elections are not always entirely free and fair. Sometimes those people then uh, turn up uh, deceased in a, in a gutter somewhere in, in Moscow. But in a sense, that happening is a sort of hypocritical nod of the hat to the idea that there ought to be elections, there ought to be liberal politics, even if they don't really work at all in somewhere like Russia. This is not what China is saying. This is not what President Xi Jinping is saying. He has made it very clear that the Leninist style of government in which an authoritarian, as they would see it, meritocratic, top-down system through one party operates is 
appropriate to the need of China and also in many ways superior in terms of the governance it could put forward. And while I wouldn't want to make any judgments, there are certain recent democratic decisions in certain Western countries that at least in the minds of some Chinese elites have confirmed them in that view. <laughs> Second point, the direction of travel has been clear for some time, but some of you may have noticed a phrase which has now become very kind of common currency in the China discussion world from the former paramount leader Deng Xiaoping, who was, you know, essentially in charge through the 1980s and much of the 1990s. And he put forward what's become known as the 16-character phrase in Chinese, that's Tao Guangyang Hui, which is basically about, look, keep your head down, China, make money, get your education system together, start your economic growth going, leave it a good long while, 10 years, 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, then bring your light from under that bushel and shine. Xi Jinping, the leader we have now in China, is the one who's basically taking advantage of that economic growth that Deng Xiaoping was putting forward as the plan for not just a year or two, but for decades, and saying that now we reap the benefits of that. And the third point, the fact that China can go from 40 years ago being basically one of the poorest countries per world, in the world per capita to being a country that can seriously consider itself a cybernetic superpower is amazing. And the consequences of that in China, of course, are that the state now uses that power to surveil its own citizens in a non-liberal society without the benefit of independent oversight from the courts, without elections that can change the government. That level of technological power with that level of economic growth and authoritarian politics is a never-before-seen combination. That is what the West needs to engage with, understand, and debate. And on that note, that excellent note, I will turn to our third speaker, David, reminding you of the question, should we welcome the passing of the West? I'm going to take this at the most basic level, um, probably because that's all I'm capable of, um, but at the most basic level, which is um, if we define the West in, in two possible ways, um, and Rana's touched upon uh, uh, these already, but the first is as an economic and internationally rules-based system, um, which we could have thought at one stage that communist China would be in opposition to, as the Soviet Union was before it, then in that sense, the West has not been challenged. The West, as Linda says, has been augmented by the Chinese economy and the Chinese, generally speaking, if you compare it, let's say, to uh, other possibilities, play according to a version of the rules which is recognisable uh, to us. And it is a capitalist society. So when the Chinese talk about um, uh, an economy with Chinese uh, characteristics, all they mean is we're not communist anymore, um, but we are never going to tell you that because uh, that big picture of Mao still sits on the... And because we're also ruled by something called the Communist Party, which is a self-perpetuating uh, elite, uh, and therefore we can't quite do away with the, with the mythos. Now, the second way in which you would define the West, um, uh, and Rana touched on this, of course, is as a place or a series of countries and a system which values what we call liberal democracy, which is essentially not just majoritarian democracy, but which is a democracy in which the rights of citizens are guaranteed against the state to a significant level and where the legal system is independent of, of, of most political forms of influence and so on, thus guaranteeing, helping to guarantee those rights for, uh, for people. Now, here's the paradox, which is put very simply. It was the belief of most of us 
certainly in the, uh, in the days of Deng Xiaoping, that what would happen in China would be that one would entail the other. Um, and you can see why this was the case. The argument simply went, the level of discussion and dissension and debate and exchange of free information that you require to run a successful capitalist economy is bound to bleed over into a demand, particularly by a rising middle class, which is an inevitable consequence of capitalism, for the same kind of freedoms uh, that they have in the West. And this, after all, is broadly speaking, the pattern we saw in country after country in the West and in Western, and in Western development, and not just in the West, in some other countries as well, uh, which was those uh, uh, rights being demanded. Once the middle class had got them, it became very difficult over time to deny them to uh, everybody in the country, and those were the kind, and that's sort of how the system was created. The big shock, by and large, to Western political philosophers has been the fact that that didn't happen at all, and that somehow you've managed to have a successful application uh, of capitalism, a fantastically successful application of a kind of cap, of a particular form of capitalism, without actually greater freedoms, and indeed, actually, latterly, with a greater degree of authoritarianism, uh, and offering a degree of efficiency sometimes towards capitalism, which uh, liberal democracies find it difficult to offer. We think about building the HS2 here in Britain, for instance. It's very, very difficult to get it done. It takes an awful long time. Such things do not take a long time in China. Uh, you just move the villages in the way and you shove them somewhere else, and if they complain about it, you slap them in choky or you find some other way of dealing with it. And in the meantime, a significant number of people have become enriched by your policies, better off, far better off miles better off than their parents or their grandparents were, and there you have it. Now, the final part of what I'm going to say therefore concerns how the West, the West, the liberal democracies, etc., react to that. And of course, this is the thing you see everywhere, which is the totally dichotomous uh, position that it puts them in. At one and the same time, they desire trade with China and a share of the Chinese, of the Chinese growth. They absolutely need it and require it and, and will go down practically on their knees before it and so on. And on the other hand, um, they also fear China and they fear the consequences of the Chinese illiberal system when it comes also to the long-term future, even of their capacity to trade, let alone their security, V-Day, Huawei, and also um, uh, Trump's success with certain of his arguments about how China has behaved in the international in the international field. There is significant worry among lots of governments about the terms of trade with China, which China actually permits, and also, frankly, its capacity at any time in the future to alter those terms of trade uh, uh, if it suits the government to do it. So there we are. We have the uh, uh, we have a truly. Uh, uh, I'm not going to say, you can't say schizophrenic these days, and quite rightly, we have a truly divided uh, uh, view of what we should do with China every single time President Xi steps onto that red carpet in a different country. We know there's at least two things going on, and they are opposed to each other. Right. Thank you very much to all three of our speakers. Um, we're going to divide this debate into three themes, the first of which is, is this the Asian century? 
Linda, I would love for you to lead us off on this question of is this the you Asian You know on the panel, Ron century. is the debater, right? It's true. It's true. Linda's the TV star. Yeah. So I am this. very curious indeed. And I know, I know I speak on behalf of the whole audience to hear what you have to say on this topic. Okay. Is this Asian century? Mm. Um, I think in terms of where the middle class is, if you want to think of it in economic terms, um, half of the world is Asian in terms of population. The bulk of the middle class will be there. Um, so in economic terms, perhaps, and that's assuming, by the way, that current growth trajectories are right. So forecasting growth, um, OK. The great economist, J.K. Galbraith, said, economic forecasting exists to make astrology look respectable. <laughs> so remember 1980, the projections were the Soviet Union and the US would be the biggest economies in the world. So I think there's a big caveat around, obviously, um, the sustainability of growth, which actually does touch on quite a lot of what both David and Rana have mentioned, because growth is never assured. And there are very hard reforms to become uh, upper middle income, much less rich. So I think that's probably the first thing to say. I wrote a book looking at 250 years of economic history. And what struck me throughout is that economists were in the past, much broader. So in other words, if you wanted to characterize a whole century, it's not going to be just about economics. So the economists that I looked at in my book start from Adam Smith, who was a philosopher. Um, and it goes through Douglas North, um, as well as later economists. Douglas North um, worked with political scientists and believed in the role of culture. So I think if you wanted to characterize a whole century, it has to, even on an economic premise, it has to be broader than just what the numbers say. It's about, for lack of a better term, the culture, the institutions, um, what Joseph Nye Harvard calls soft power. It's all of those things, I think, um, that make a, a superpower rather than just an economic superpower. And I think if you look at uh, the, um, so we've been talking about China a lot. Obviously, it's coming up um, against um, a lot of economic challenges to become rich. But it's also the fastest growing, has been the fastest growing major economy um, over the past few decades, um, there's a lot of institutional challenges with having um, a system which is, um, which is literally an outlier to how we understand the relationship between um, growth and effective rule of law, growth and um, you know, good governance and growth and political pluralism. In fact, if you plotted it, it'd be like all the countries in the world over time, and then there's China. Um, which has grown very well, despite not having any of those good institutional bases. So the question is, when the rule of law goes up mm. against the rule of party in China, which one would win? And for economists, it has to be the former, um, because that's what supports growth. So to me, those are the kinds of perhaps things to think about. And just let me just conclude with one thought, which is, um, China is hard to characterize. I think you've probably picked that up already. There's a saying, China is like a dozen contradictions a day. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of things which are very difficult, I think, to place. But China's also changed a lot in terms of the way it reforms and has reformed itself. So there was a time when the, the reform model it was following 
looked a lot more like, as David was saying, um, perhaps the trajectory that we've seen with other countries moving away from a centrally planned communist economy, adopting more of the capitalist as well as democratic um, transition that you see in other parts of the world. Um, and I think that's the question that we have to um, debate. Um, and let me just finish with one, uh, one observation, again, by a great economist about when China, during that period, um, what he thought China's um, socialism with Chinese characteristics was really like. So J.K. Galbraith, again, said, the difference between capitalism and communism is that under capitalism, man exploits man. Under communism, it's the exact opposite. <laughs> Rana, I'm going to turn to you, and I want to just weave in a challenge here, which is that the question is also, you know, it's, is this the Asian century? And it's tempting for us to just focus on China, of course, because it is this rising superpower, its size um, in terms of population and economic wealth. But I want to weave in the fact that we're also talking about a whole region and get you to focus on, you know, compare and contrast when we, when we answer this as a global question. You made a really important point there, actually. And this is one of the things that anyone who looks at the region notes, that you say that China's a bundle of contradictions, but actually, of course, Asia itself is a huge number of contradictions. Asia is democratic. Asia is authoritarian. Asia has high economic growth. It has very low economic growth. Asia is egalitarian. Taiwan um, uh, um, uh, would be a good example of that, relatively speaking. Ta uh, Asia is also incredibly unequal, China being a good example of that, uh, that as well. So I think to answer your question concisely, I want to come back to one particular point that I, uh, that I made, and that's about demographics. So I mentioned, no, I didn't make that point, did I? Hey, you get something new in every answer. What can I say? OK, so I'd like to bring up a point I didn't make before, but we'll make now, which is about demographics. In 2029, something very important will happen to China, and it's almost inevitable that that will happen. Because of a variety of factors, notably the one-child policy, which everyone I'm sure here has heard about in China that's operated over 40 years. It's now ended. It ended in 2015, but it operated over two generations. Um, that and other factors mean that from 2029, China will start losing population. So it, till then, it will keep hitting that peak of 1.3 billion people, most populous country in the world. But after that, I think we're going to lose, and again, I'm looking at the numbers woman here, about 5 million Chinese people fewer every year. And we will also see that the demographic of China becomes older and older. So if you want to project that forward, let's say 20 years, which is not that far off. I can just about remember 20 years ago. I don't know about the rest of the, uh, rest of the panel. That's a time at which Indonesia, for instance, is going to have a lot more significance. It's already the most, uh, I think, the single most populous Muslim majority country in the world. It doesn't have billions, but it certainly has many hundreds of millions, and that will increase because it's demographic is much younger and it's growing much faster. It is, of course, also a democracy, unlike China, but actually like many other countries in the region. So again, because China's so dominant, we tend to think of the Asian century as potentially being one that is authoritarian. It was the, the late Lee Kuan Yew, the former dictator of uh, Singapore, who, uh, sorry, I mean, elected prime minister of Singapore, who um, <laughs> used to talk about something called Asian values in the 90s, which mostly seemed to involve basically listening to your uh, elders, who are almost always male, and uh, not, not, rocking the, uh, not rocking the boat. And that very sort of China-oriented view of what Asian values is, I think, will become 
quite outdated in 20 years' time. Instead, countries like, as I say, Indonesia, like South Korea and Japan, which have older demographics but are firmly democratic these days, uh, the territory of Taiwan, which, of course, may have entered a new sort of relationship. Uh, if you think Brexit is complicated, think about Taiwan reunification. You know what political change in, in, in Asia really has challenges to, uh, uh, to throw you in that particular case. All of those things, I think, will change the balance of power in some very important ways. But I think the single thing that may decide whether or not Asia becomes the driving hub of a new global economic and political situation is whether or not the rest of the world and China are able to actually engage with each other in a way that's more than the sum of the parts. If the Chinese proposal for the so-called New Silk Road, the Belt and Road Initiative, turns into a way to create a new social, economic, commercial, and military space in which the United States is there in Asia and China is there, um, I believe Britain after Brexit, our current uh, former foreign secretary, possibly future prime minister, is arguing that Britain ought to have a new military presence in, in East Asia. So perhaps we'll be going east of Eden again. If that ends up to a cooperative atmosphere, then actually it will be very hard to stop Asia because the preponderance of the population and the economic center of gravity will move there inexorably. That's a good word, inexorably. If it doesn't happen that way, if, for instance, the current trade dispute between China and the United States turns into essentially a new Cold War, and I think that would be very regrettable, and I think there is a real danger that it might happen, then I think you might actually see Asia becoming the cockpit. Not, I think, of a confrontation in military sense. I still think that's very unlikely. But a whole variety of factors that could actually stall the kind of economic growth that we're talking about and may mean that the rosier, linear scenarios suddenly finding themselves, have to be, uh, finding themselves having to be very quickly revised. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface-level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month. And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. So these are great questions for us to lead into our next theme, which is what dangers, this is quite a loaded question, by the way, what dangers does China's growing prominence bring? It could bring none, it could be wonderful, but the question is what dangers does it bring? So I will focus on that first. David, I'd love for you to start us off just perhaps starting with this idea of why are we even phrase, phrasing this in a negative way? If you, if you think about a government, let's say, that commits itself to the idea that man-made climate change is real and then doesn't have to worry too much significantly about a huge public debate full of people like Nigel Lawson getting up and saying it's not really happening and you don't have to make these sacrifices, that's quite a significant advantage when it comes to taking action. And you could argue that Chinese capacity to construct technology in this field and to apply it has owes something to uh, owes something to the system, and as a de democrat, obviously, I'm kind of reluctant to give it. Um, the worry, the thing that worries me, um, is not. I mean, I'm worried enough about what China does in its own backyard. So the lo locking up of all these uh, Uyghurs in re-education camp uh, uh, Muslims is a dis is an outrage in and of itself, which we ought to worry about. Um, and one notes, and it's you, you can't help but note it. 
that for a country whose um, uh, ruling party expresses such incredible confidence in itself, the need to bang up poets for the whole of their lives until they die in prison is a rather extraordinary contradiction. I mean, after all, why bother? Why, why worry about it? But the worry that you have is, so, but let's leave China's internal politics alone for a moment. What happens if through various things, a large number of countries up and coming say, well, actually, you know, this is not a bad model for us either. Democracy is a long and irritating business. It's become much more complicated. In the era of the internet, it's also become cacophonous and vaguely chaotic. Wouldn't it be very much simpler if we controlled the internet, if we controlled what people saw, what they did, if we could award people good citizenship status on the basis of their behaviour online and their purchase behaviour, because we've done away with money, etc., and we now can see what they're doing uh, or everything that they're doing online. Um, essentially, if we move to a benign version of Orwell's 1984, wouldn't that actually be better all round? Um, so I'm worried about the example. I mean, I do note that we've had pre previous panics. Those of you who bought a copy of Michael Crichton's Red Sun back in the day, any of you here buy that book? It was all about how the Japanese would take over the world. It's a good movie, too, uh, with Sean Connery. Uh, well, there you go. Um, I'm not sure about the good movie, but Sean Connery was definitely yeah. in it. Um, uh, it didn't happen, and that kind of, sort of, uh, that kind of fright, that fright scenario uh, never took place. And it could well be that given Rana's... Um, scenario for 2029, which is that actually China has significant problems that it itself has to deal with and may actually want to seek to be rather more accommodating and more like some of its uh, competitors. That is an alternative scenario, so we shouldn't always posit the worst possible scenario. The difficulty for us to know is what we do to bring the most benign scenario about. Is there anything that we can do? Can we exercise any influence by behaviour or otherwise that makes this business of living alongside China uh, a better business for us and for the political system, which we don't just hold to because it's a convenience, but because we genuinely believe it is a better guarantor of, uh, of human rights and the things which are important to us. This is an excellent lead. Thank you so much, David, for outlining that so beautifully. For the question I'm now going to ask you, Rana, because you hinted at this, are we looking at a new Cold War between the United States and China? I think that there is a real and tangible danger, and I will use the word danger, actually, of a new Cold War emerging between Washington and Beijing if things carry on in a linear direction from where they're going now. And I think that's a combination of something that... It's two things, so I'm going to be very, very, I think, uh, um, uh, objective, I hope, by putting kind of 50-50 responsibility on two sets of shoulders. The first is on the United States and the current administration. And I think the problem is, and I think both David and Linda will have, and Stephanie, you too, I think will have views on this, so I'd love to be contradicted on this, but my sense is the problem is that the Trump administration specifically, compared to its predecessors, both Republican and Democratic, does not really have a China policy it has a China mood, and that mood is angry. China is doing stuff that we don't like, they say, and we need to stop them doing that stuff. And when you get beyond that and ask you, well, what is it you want China to do? 
the answers become a bit difficult to provide. So they start off relatively easy. We want China to stop devaluing its currency. Well, actually, kind of China stopped doing that a while ago, at least in the classic uh, classic sense. We want China to stop producing cheap stuff, cheap stuff that Americans keep buying. Like, well, actually, they don't really do that so much anymore. You know, China has not been the workshop of the world for at least a decade. All the manufacturing, in fact, there are a whole bunch of Chinese who, if they were voters, they would be Trump voters. Because that's like the Ethiopians and the Vietnamese stole all our jobs. We used to make shoes, and now we don't get to do that any uh, anymore. And actually, probably the most difficult one, and this speaks to the Huawei question as well. What the Trump administration is really saying is. China, how dare you innovate? How dare you create new technology and new infrastructures and create new trading relationships where you don't check with us first? You can't do that. Remember the case, which I think is a very problematic case. So we, you know, it's become very well publicized of the telecoms executive from Huawei who was arrested uh, you know, about a, uh, half a year ago and is being held in uh, Vancouver. Now, China did not cover itself in glory. In fact, behaved very badly by arresting two Canadian former diplomats, actually, off the back of that, called Michael Coverig and Michael Spaver. And uh, one hopes they're released very soon, because although it was supposedly completely coincidental, I don't think anyone thinks that it was at all. The reason, though, I think that was not just, who was it? Was it Stalin who said it was worse than a crime, it was a mistake? Uh, you, you're the, the expert, I know, on Stalinism at home, David, so I'll take you from that. Because it obscured- it didn't actually visit us, so. Right, fair <laughs> enough. Well, you know, uh, home life with, 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 with Joe always, always, always interesting. In this particular case, I think that there was a strategic move that the Chinese could and should have made, which was the issue on which she was arrested was basically China doing, and her company doing deals with Iran. Now, going out there and saying, we're not going to tit for tat, we're not going to arrest random Chinese, uh, Canadian former diplomats. Instead, we're going to point out that we, China, do not accept the premise that if we, sitting over in Beijing, choose to deal with the government of Tehran, which you may not like for all sorts of reasons in Washington, that is not your business. And that is a case that actually is logical. You may agree with it, you may disagree with it, but it could be made very cleanly. Now that is much harder to do in that particular case. So that mood in Washington, that basically if China doesn't do what Washington wants, then it's gonna get trouble, is gonna be harder and harder to do as more and more of China's activities and development are autonomous. But just to flip briefly to the other side, I think China is doing a very, is, is having a very, very hard time giving itself a very hard time in making an attractive case to the rest of the world. So, you know, this idea of basically, is there soft power? Is there a sort of attractiveness about China? And people love or, not, or respect, in some cases love lots of things about China. You know, it produces this huge amount of foreign direct investment that does go to very impoverished parts of the world, which otherwise wouldn't get investment. You know, when, if you tell the Pakistanis not to take Chinese money, well, it's not as if the US is sitting there with a huge check waiting uh, instead. It used to be the case, but no, no longer so. The story about poverty reduction since 1978 is absolutely astounding, as is the economic growth, the skyscrapers, the technology, all of that. But for reasons that always have escaped me, the Chinese Communist Party seems to think it has to be tied up with this top-down authoritarian politics in which the last five years has seen China becoming not more, but less free. Lawyers are less free. The media is less free. Academics are less free. And actually, not only is that completely unnecessary, it obscures the very good story that China has to tell the rest of the world by making people focus quite rightly on what China is doing that is unattractive. I often tell Chinese officials, and the most recent group was actually for the People's Liberation Army, America is not China's worst enemy. China is. Ooh. Yeah, okay, that's, okay. <laughs> you may disagree. My mind is officially blown on that one. No, I'm just thinking that, that in a way also is quite true for the United States. 
In terms of attractiveness, China has this incredibly interesting development story to tell the world to do with technology, mm. poverty reduction, all of that. And it's its own actions, its own type of politics that's getting in the way of making that popular. If it dumped that, then I actually genuinely think that China has the best chance of any society in the world, more than India, more than South Africa, more than much of Western Europe, to go around the world saying, we found another way a non-American way, a non-Western way to create modernity, and you can come on this ride too. The trouble is the people who are stopping that becoming attractive at the moment are the Chinese side, not Mm. the American side. So you've you've just highlighted and hinted at some ways that the West can retain its global significance. Um, which is really interesting. We've, we've talked about what the US does well, what the US is doing poorly. And I don't want the US to just be a proxy for the West. There's obviously many other countries as well that would be involved in that when we talk about how the West can retain its global significance. And Linda, I'd love for you to take up that baton with the challenge of the United States has sort of withdrawn a little bit in the Trump administration. It's a much more transactional approach. It's not such a giver anymore and it's it's soft power it's more of a has, taker, it's no. more of a taker um, or it's more of a, an art of the deal maker and it has definitely seen its soft power i think be challenged in recent years mm. um, as being something that perhaps once was nice and maybe is not so nice that's a provocative statement but being from illinois i want to be the one on the uh, panel to make it how can the west retain its global significance given the challenges rana has just so brilliantly mm. outlined Um, is to argue the case for democracy, for a more reformed and equitable um, pro-environment, inclusive form of capitalism. So again, because I've been looking a lot at economic history, um, what strikes me is we are in a period where there is, as we've been talking about, a real structural change in the world economy, but we've been here before. So if you think about the early part of the 20th century, 60% of the world lived in either communist or socialist countries. And the battle to retain democracy and capitalism was very much a battle of ideas. And today, we are in many ways facing a similar type of challenge to the ways in which the best organization of our society, of our economy, is under scrutiny, is under direct Um, contradiction by a country uh, like China, which has done remarkably well um, in terms of um, economic growth and is um, and can be appealing uh, to countries for whom the traditional economic growth models haven't helped. So I sort of see it as a balkanization of the world. So um, so it's because I was in... um, the uh, former Republic of uh, Macedonia recently. So literally, I was in the Western Balkans. <laughs> and um, the, the appeal of either a, a China type of growth model versus a Western type of growth model, um, I think that's really um, the debate. So in other words, if you turn towards the West, um, a lot of countries Most countries in the world are not rich. A quarter of the world's countries are rich. Most countries um, are middle income and find it hard to become prosperous. And within the West, there's stagnation of wages uh, for the median worker. There's growing inequality. There's dissatisfaction with the way our system works. So if you look across the Western Balkans, you go down through the Middle East, through East Africa, just to draw a sort of line south, you find that China has seemingly delivered the elimination of extreme poverty, which is pretty much um, 
unheard of until the last few decades for a country that was poorer than um, most African countries in 1990 to have done. Then you look at um, the, you know, the middle class that's growing the rest of Asia, and you start to think, well, maybe that side turning towards um, that model might be more, um, more productive for my country. And if you turn towards the China Belt and Road, they also give you some money. So, you know, turn through the East, you get a bit of money as well. But I think the point is, I think you have a real, at this point, battle of ideas. So what, what can the West do? Well, I think you have to debate this. You have to do what um, people did during um, and before and during um, the Cold War. And this, as I said, was a battle of ideas that stemmed um, really <clears throat> since the latter part of the 19th century, which was the Gilded Age, the period of high income inequality. That was the period of the growth of Marxism the growth of trade unionism, and that eventually led to an actual Cold War where the two sides were uh, very much um, competing ideologies. And I think we are at one of those points today. So what can we do? What can everyone here do um, to reform the system in which we live? And I think one of the things to stress is the capitalist system has always been reinvented. Adam Smith's capitalist system is not the capitalist system we have in the 20th century. The welfare state changed capitalism, and it will continue to evolve. And if it doesn't evolve, um, then it will be challenged. But over centuries, it has evolved. And that requires all of us um, to take um, to do our part in it. So I'll finish with one other thought from um, some of the great economists that I've been looking at. There's an argument that ultimately democracy, this is an argument made by Friedrich Hayek, um, as well as by Joseph Schumpeter to some extent, which is the only system of economic organization that's compatible with democracy is capitalism. So under a communist system, the state decides where you work, what you buy, what you do, where you live. Um, but only under a capitalist system where you have the choice, you have the rights um, to make those decisions about your livelihood, about the ways in which you live and operate. And that is why capitalism and democracy over centuries is actually being linked. But as I say, it has to be reformed, it has to change, and this is now the time um, where we all have to engage in this kind of battle if we want to um, maintain um, what was the title of this session? Not the end of the Global West. significance. <laughs> Global significance. Yeah, well, I think to maintain um, the values that make us who we are, broadly speaking, mm. in the Western liberal democracies, is the values that we don't talk enough about. Um, and I hope um, we'll talk more about values. Well, this takes us back to this battle of ideas. We're in a country where we're having a battle of ideas. We seem to be in a Western region that's a battle of ideas and possibly even on the planet. And if we possibly also don't focus on climate change, all of these debates that we're having will become redundant because we're going to cook ourselves in 100 years' time and conferences like this won't happen anymore. So how sad that would be. All that remains is for us to say thank you to our speakers and thank you to all of you. Great questions. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Philosophy for Our Times. The podcast was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. It was hosted by me, Anna Carey, and our guests this week were Linda Yu, 
Rana Mitter and David Aronovich. For more on today's topic, have a listen to The Crisis of the West with Kwasi Kwartang, Gita Segal and Philip Collins, who dispute the world's future, as well as leadership in the age of Trump with Jess Phillips, John Barnes and Tanya Brannigan on the future of world peace in an age of Trump's leadership. Now you've listened to today's episode, do make sure you head over to iTunes and give us a rating or review. Tell anyone you know that might be interested in the podcast and of course tune in next week for more debates and talks with the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas.